Quick disclaimer, although what we say is evidence and literature-based, we don't know your personal details and situation. Therefore, make sure you're discussing these things with your doctor. Welcome to the CPR for Life podcast. I am Sagar Doshi, boarded and practicing lifestyle medicine physician and emergency medicine physician, joined by Zachar Moses, boarded and practicing emergency physician and practicing lifestyle medicine physician. Welcome back, everyone. We last time talked about the pillar known as exercise or movement and how it is instrumental in helping prevent and reverse lots of chronic illness. We gave broad overviews of what happens if you're not doing it, what wonderful things can happen if you do move more. But let's actually get more into, all right, how much should we be doing? What should we be doing? Some more nuts and bolts kind of things. Zach, can you help us with that? Yeah. Uh, so I think we should start by defining certain types of exercise, just the basics here. So there's aerobic exercise, there's anaerobic exercise, the, the two kind of the dichotomy uh, that we want to start and split this into. So aerobic exercise, as you might guess, requires aerobic respiration, which basically requires oxygen. This is usually light to moderate stuff, uh, but you're doing it for an extended period. So you're jogging, but you're not sprinting you know, walking, things that are simple and easy to do that you're not going full out. So you get your, your carbo, in this case, your carbohydrates are turned into ATP. ATP is what your body uses to burn energy. It's, it's the kind of the, the molecule that you need in order to actually burn. And that's your mitochondria. That, Made by those mitochondria that we mentioned yes, last time. Yep. So your mitochondria activity. And this is why exercise we talked about last time, as you exercise, you get increased mitochondrial activity. This is where you become more efficient in your exercise. This is why if you run, you're able to get in more shape because your mitochondria become more effective at performing cellular respiration. And so as, as you go on and on, you can increase your distance and increase your speed and not feel like you're working as hard as you were previously. So typical aerobic respiration, your heart rate should be 70 to 80% of your max for your age. Your max for your age is 220 minus your age. So if you're 20 year old, your max heart rate it. is- That's the whole formula. Yep. Yep. Okay. So if you're 20 years old, your max heart rate is 200. You shouldn't go above 200. So it's 70 to 80% of that. You know, you should be three quarters of that. So usually what you're looking at in this is your large muscle groups are doing continuous and rhythmic motions, swimming, running, biking, uh, elliptical, staring, you know, to walk up stair, uh, the stairmaster, whatever you're doing, rowing, things like that, that are relatively rhythmic. You're not doing, you know, surprise shock movements. You're not doing like aggressive cutting. You're not sprinting. Uh, you're just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. Anaerobic exercise, on the other hand, you break out, you break down your glucose, you break down your sugar without the use of oxygen. So this is a rapid form of creating ATP. It uses glucose and it skips any use of oxygen. What you typically get when this happens is you build up lactic acid as your output of this. Uh, and everybody gets all freaked out because they think lactic acid, your body turns acidic. Your body has ways to counteract that. So unless you're like really working and you don't give yourself a break, you're not going to get into too much trouble. Typically, your body's in the limit the amount of anaerobic exercise that you can do uh, before you hit that threshold. So which is your, your lactic acid threshold or your anaerobic threshold is that point at which your body can no longer clear all the lactic acid that you're creating. And so now you're getting the accumulation of it. So if I work really hard, if I go and sprint or I'm doing weightlifting, there's going to be a certain point where I build up lactic, I build up lactic, I hit a certain point where my body goes, uh-uh, I can't clear this anymore. And you're going to start feeling it. Uh, and, and usually you're going to slow down. There are certain people who can tolerate this better than others. 
there was a famous study on the Superman mouse. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of this, but what? Oh, you never heard of the study? I haven't. Tell me more. Oh, so it was actually Mighty Mouse. Yeah, kind they of. They just should have called him Mighty Mouse. I don't know why they didn't. That's a good point. I think they called it the Superman Mouse, if I remember correctly. Uh, but it was actually my my biochemistry professor in college and undergrad was the the person who conducted this study. So he was like famous for it. It was like a big deal at the time. So they did a Pepsi K knockout mouse. So basically, the the it's phospholipopyruvate creatine kinase is the name of the enzyme. And they might have actually ramped it up, if I remember correctly enough. The biology doesn't really matter. But the point is, they created <laughs> they created a mouse that by increasing its anaerobic threshold to the point where they couldn't accumulate lactic acid, this mouse could literally run all day and not get tired. It would just run and run and run. Wow. And there was no negative effects from a physiologic standpoint or from a physical standpoint, I guess I should say. I guess the mice were much more aggressive and had some other issues. Uh, so obviously this wouldn't be something we could do in people and just make them super athletes. Um, because I think that's what people were recommending after this. And the guy was like, well, slow down. It was just a study to see like the physiology, yeah. not to like actually apply this to human <laughs> beings. But we don't need super soldiers right now. Right. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the, the study was interesting that if you, if you basically raise that lactic threshold, you get massive levels of exercise tolerance. And I think if I remember correctly as well, they actually looked at Lance Armstrong. And I think he had a remarkably high level of, of ability to tolerate lactic acidemia, um, independent of whatever blood doping he was doing. <laughs> yeah. So we'll avoid that. But I think that's the case of a lot of these elite athletes is they have high levels of ability to tolerate uh, anaerobic exercise. And they'd have to. Yeah, you would think, uh, at least better than my anaerobic threshold. So the benefits of some of these Aerobic exercise, like I mentioned before, is going to increase your cardiovascular system and your ability to uptake and transport oxygen uh, and, and tolerate long levels of, of activity. It will decrease your resting heart rate. It does not decrease your max heart rate and doesn't touch your max heart rate. Your maximum heart rate stays the same, but you will decrease your resting heart rate if you have good exercise tolerance, which makes sense. It will, however, increase your maximum cardiac output. So the more you exercise, your cardiac output increases but it does not increase your resting heart output, uh, cardiac output, which makes sense. Uh, you don't really need your cardiac output at rest to go up at all. But, you know, when you're exercising, obviously you want to be able to, your heart to be able to punch it, pump out more oxygen and more blood faster. Your VO2 can increase. And VO2 is basically a, uh, a marker of how well your body utilizes oxygen. The idea that aerobic exercise can increase your VO2 is a bit controversial. I think there's a there's a range in which it can increase, but I think for a lot of people, this is just kind of more set in stone than we would like. Some people have high VO2s naturally and some people don't. But there, I think there's a range hmm. to which you can increase your VO2 when you exercise. Your and this is what they're measuring when you see people on the bicycle wearing masks that yes. hose is coming out of them. Yes. Again, more helpful for elite athletes, I think, than for us. And people with their fitness watches now have a VO2 measurement but i think even what? that yeah you know that if you like my apple watch will tell me my vo2 goodness it's uh, it's sur is it accurate i how could it be accurate not really no i think it's more of the surrogate marker what right. what they do is they look at the heart rate and how fast you're moving so when you're running they would say this is how fast you're moving this is your heart rate this is your age and they used to calculate it but i don't think they really have a good idea of an actual measurement but you can measure trends which is kind of nice but i don't think you're able to see okay you know um 
yeah, I don't think you're actually able to see a true VO2 max. I'm sure you're not able to see a true VO2 max. And I'm not willing to pay the $2,500 or whatever it is to go get my VO2 max tested just for edification's sake. So, uh, <laughs> and then um, you can increase your myocardial oxygen capacity um, given a level of training. So your maximum doesn't change, but your oxygen capacity will increase at a certain, you know, 50% of your output arbitrarily. You will be able to tolerate more. So basically you're going to get, if you have heart disease or you have coronary disease, you're going to get less angina at a certain level of training. This is what we were talking about in the last podcast with basically a cardiac rehab. And you'll get decreased peripheral vascular resistance, which also what we talked about, you'd get lower blood pressure basically, which is good. These are all good things. Anaerobic exercise does totally different things. Uh, you get increased bone strength and density. You'll get weight loss because it increases your metabolism, probably related to increasing your bone strength and muscle mass and decreasing your body fat percentage. And it'll increase your lactic acid threshold. And it'll strengthen your joints if done properly. Uh, so, of course, there are ways to do this improperly and hurt yourself when you're exercising. <laughs> but anaerobic exercise is typically going to be some kind of resistance training. So this is what people, you know, to increase your bone density, if you have osteoporosis doing some resistance training, or especially if you're, you know, a woman who lives, you know, a, a Caucasian woman who lives in, you know, a, a cool climate without much sun. This is Anywhere what, but the equator. Right. Um, this is why you really need to... Or just anywhere. I guess, yeah. I mean, everybody should be doing this, but this is why they specifically focus on on that group because their incidence of osteoporosis is so much higher that they should be doing something to prevent that, and this is a good thing to do. Um, so that's kind of the aerobic and anaerobic walkthrough. What thoughts? Go. I didn't give you any chance to speak through any of that, and I kind of feel like I was... I think you did that all on one breath, which is amazing. You should see... Yeah, I, did you breathe? No. Did you even blink? No, that was, that was my... Ana well it was an anaerobic <laughs> discussion where I didn't know breathing. <laughs> No, I think that was really good information. Maybe you can discuss a little bit how aerobic and anaerobic overlap, though. That it's not a clean no, distinction. No, of course not. Like, when I go for my runs, I feel like most of what I'm doing is anaerobic toward the end because I'm just, like, I'm I'm, I'm certain that I'm hitting lactic acid, acid thresholds because my heart rate gets up to a certain point where I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm running. So my heart rate goes very high very quickly, for example. So when I'm running, even when I'm doing lightly running, I'm at... 160, 165 pretty quick, even if I don't feel like I'm stressed. What that says about my aerobic shape in my VO2 max, I don't know, but that's just what happens. But toward the end of my runs, I'm usually like, you know, 175, 180, which is getting pretty close to my max at my age. Uh, and I'll stay there for, you know, my last five, seven minutes of my run. Uh, so I'm certainly reaching my anaerobic threshold. But you're, you're right, as your heart rate comes up and you're, you're working, you're crossing that threshold from aerobic to anaerobic and it's not the easiest thing in the world to you know parse out which is which and then you've got things like hit training the high high intensity interval training which we'll talk about the studies on that but basically you're trying to find you know you're doing really hard quick intense anaerobic stuff and then as your heart rate comes back down while you're resting you kind of go back into this aerobics phase for a little bit and then you push it again and come back up to anaerobic uh so there's there's definitely a crossover or a way to turn things that are traditionally aerobic into anaerobic workouts. Does that make sense? And vice versa. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're doing weightlifting... If you're doing a weightlifting circuit, your heart's going to start racing. Right, right, exactly. Or if you're, if you're you know, lifting... And you're going to start breathing heavy, trying to get more oxygen. Right. You're going to feel differently and depending on how you're doing your routine. Exactly. Especially for... And, and I think that's another important thing. There's a... You know, I, I think a lot of people look at the comparison among 
athletes, and I'm using the word athlete generally to say anybody who does physical activity, but people who exercise to compare yourself to somebody else is really not helpful in any capacity. I, I have friends who are in much better shape than I am, and I have friends who I'm in better shape than. To expect us to do the same workout is just wholly unrealistic. So, I mean, I think a lot of people look at these like personal trainers and they're like, well, they look like this and they can do this, this, and this for this amount of time. I'm like, yeah, you can't because you're just starting and that's okay. That's normal. Uh, and I don't want you doing that because you're going to get hurt. Whether that's, you know, you have an MI yeah. or you, you know, have an injury or you stop working out because it's too intense and impossible. You know, nobody can do an anaerobic exercise for them for an hour straight. Like that's just not a thing. There aren't Pepsi K human beings that we know of that can just keep going and going and going. Uh, at least not on a normal level, who's not an elite athlete. So yeah, I, I think that the looking at these people as role models is, I guess, kind of good, but to trying to emulate their workouts is completely preposterous. Yeah, and you don't know what variability they have, how much time they're putting in. Yeah. But there's so many variables, and just to try and compare yourself is... Uh, it's, like you said, not helpful and can backfire. How many injuries have you seen in the emergency department from people that said, huh, I'm going to start working out today. Oh my Bam. God. I don't know. I can't, I, even, I can't quantify that. End and yeah. I need surgery. I can't. <laughs> I, I literally can't quantify that. Uh, there are so many. <laughs> and how many, yeah. and how many have I done myself trying to do things that I'm not ready for? I mean, you know, when I decided I'm going to deadlift and I'm like, yeah, I'll just jump into deadlifting and not work on my form really, really well before I start increasing weight. And all of a sudden you get that increased weight and you just yank and twist a certain weight. And you're like, okay, well, my back's done for two weeks. That's cool. <laughs> Guess I can't work out at right. all yeah. for a while. Now, now who benefits? Because I'm trying to be a hero, you know, and, and look like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, my, my day one. I'm like, yeah, I could lift like him. You know, he's only been doing this his entire life. And there are people, yeah, there are people that, look like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you look at how they're moving when they do the motions of their routines and it just makes me cringe. I go, oh, mm -hmm. your body is not supposed to move mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That is going to catch up to you. Well, even I don't know when, but that can't be good. Even looking at like, like people like The Rock, for example, is, is legendary for his workout routine. You know, Dwayne Johnson is like, he's always posting selfies of himself in the work in the gym, but he's in the gym like three hours a day because it's his job to look like that. Like that's his brand. If he doesn't look like that, yeah. that's like, it's not realistic for you to work a nine to five job or us in a ER yard job and come home and spend three and a half hours in the gym and still, you know, do all the things that we need to do. Like I would argue that's unhealthy. Yeah, I'd see it. So especially because you have other things and people, right. animals potentially in your life. Sure. Yeah. Right? You have other responsibilities. Then they're going to suffer. Yeah. 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 So, and it's awesome that he can do that. That's great. And that's, again, part of his job. And I'm not, you know, bashing him. That's, that's what he does. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. But that's not what everybody needs to be doing. It really, it really comes back to why. That's a, that's a great point. It comes back to why the heck do we want to work out? As the old saying goes, it's not to necessarily just look buff or fit into smaller clothes. It's definitely not to fit into a smaller coffin, right? The point is to actually be healthy and live in a way that we get to do the things we want. If what's important to us, right? If we, what's important to me is being able to play basketball, uh, that's not, by the way, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> but <clears throat> if that was important to me, then, okay, I'm going to work out in a way that lets me do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to work out in a way that makes me look like the rock. These mm -hmm. are two 
things that don't necessarily have to overlap. Yeah, there's a reason why nobody on a basketball court who's any good at basketball looks like The Rock. Because that would be very non-conducive yeah. to shooting a basketball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you need flexibility and agility. Quickly. Right. Like, I imagine. Yeah. He's yeah. probably still faster than I am, but that's not the, <laughs> it's not the yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that, going on to that, actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there was an interesting study, actually done a couple of these studies, but there was a study done in the Mayo Clinic proceedings, actually, which looked at the cardiovascular effects from excessive endurance exercise. And basically what they looked at was people who performed a heavy amount of marathon training. I think if I remember correctly from the study, it was 20 marathons was considered a lot. I consider one marathon a lot. Yes, so do I. I don't think that I will ever marathon in my entire life, and I'm fine with that. The point is... There are people out there that marathon a day for there was weeks on end. There was, that one couple, my mind. there was that one couple who did a marathon a day for a year. And they were like in their 70s. Seems like zero fun. Yeah. So you're saying they're not going to make it to their 80s. Is that what you're saying? So the likelihood of death actually increases. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a couple of, of suggestions as to why that was. Uh, so you actually get some remodeling. So your, your heart's working so hard that you get, basically your body's trying to replace that muscle with something else is what remodeling means. It doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. It just means it's changing. But in these people, it was a negative change, we think. You actually get dilation of your right ventricle, which is usually a bad thing. What that's usually indicating is some kind of increased pressure that that right side of the heart is pumping against. Now, the right heart shouldn't be pumping against very high pressures because it's pumping into the pulmonary system, which then comes back into the left side of the, the heart. Yeah, into the lungs, which then comes back into the left side of the heart, which gets pumped out to the rest of the body. That's why the left side of the heart is bigger than the right, because the left's got to pump out much harder and more blood. So that right side of the heart dilates, which indicates to at least some degree that there's some high pressures in the, in the lungs, which is usually a very bad thing for people. When people start dealing with pulmonary hypertension, uh, that's a tough diagnosis and tough to treat, regardless of the cause. And they're pro-arrhythmogenic. So those people, that, when you start getting dilation of certain parts of the heart and certain areas, you can start messing with the electrical system of the heart and you can start getting an increased risk of your heart going into rhythms that can kill you. So with your marathon or just, you know, one day is just walking out and all of a sudden they just die. And we don't necessarily know why. It's probably from an arrhythmia. And I'm not saying this is like going to happen to them by any means, but it puts them at an increased risk and they actually had increased mortality, um, which is kind of counterintuitive. I think for most people, people usually think like, oh, you can run marathons, you're in excellent shape. And yeah, I agree. They probably are in great cardiovascular shape initially, but you start doing it over and over and over again, you actually create problems. Uh, so much so that one of my... Yeah, well, this is another example of, oh, so some is good. Yeah. The most must be better. The most, <laughs> right. One of, my, one of my friends who's in excellent shape, uh, better shape than I'll ever be, and he's done at least one Ironman, but I think a couple. And he just recently completed a sub three-hour marathon, which is, I, I can't even imagine trying That's to do that. Wild. Right. And he's not like, you know, a... a He's not an athlete for a living. Like he's just somebody who trains on top of his regular job, which is even more impressive. But I actually told him, I was doing the research for this and I was like, hey, uh, love you, bro. Don't marathon anymore, please. Like you're done. You, you've accomplished this goal. <laughs> you don't need to do this anymore. You actually start increasing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I just really wanted to do this. And now I'm going back to my regular training. 
but yeah, I mean, I was, I told him specifically, this is actually bad for you if you continue to do this. So I'm glad I came across this for that reason. But I didn't know that. So I was, I was actually looking this up as a, as a positive influence. Like, hey, people who marathon are going to be really healthy. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh no, they're not. This kind of went the other direction. Not necessarily. Yeah. Depending on how many you do and for how long you're doing them. Right. But I've actually, I've had multiple patients that have come in for atrial fibrillation or one of those rhythms that can make your life miserable or not bother you, depending on what kind of person you are. Mm -hmm. And talking with them, they have told me, just I thought I was really healthy. I have run marathons. Like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Boom. Heard it again. Boom. Heard it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So This is what the data shows. And it's bearing out in real life. Look at that. Yeah. It's... I guess it's nice when the data finally work out. I feel bad for those people because they think they're doing a good thing for themselves. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I guess that leads to the next question. What is the appropriate amount of exercise that we should be doing? Any ideas? Right, because it is the exception to the rule that you're going to have some sort of not-so-good outcome from exercise. Correct. And it is the rule that you are going to get good outcomes from exercise. Correct. Or just more movement. Yeah. So what's, what's the number? Do you know? I think you already know. So the recommendation currently is 150 minutes per week yes. of moderate activity. And it can be cut in half if you go for intense, vigorous activity. Correct. So the idea is that if you're doing moderate activity, which gives you one minute, and then if you're doing vigorous activity, you get two minutes is, the, uh, is how the, the numbers work out, which I think my old Garmin watch used to actually consider that. Which is kind of cool because it made it a little bit a lot of cool technology. Yeah, I feel like you know, it's a, I try to I try to keep up to date. Do you remember what the vigorous activity was? I have a I have a watch with a broken face, thanks to my kid who beat it with the end of a fork. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like a a little boy move. Can you see that? Oh yeah, it was him. <laughs> <laughs> so the modern intensity versus vigorous intensity was I think if you were exercising at greater than your 60% your VO2 max, it was considered vigorous. Less than 60% your VO2 max was considered moderate, if I remember correctly, for how the CDC calculates it at least. So, yeah. You and if you want to not have some high-tech way of figuring out what level of activity you're at, if you can talk but not carry on a conversation, then you are at moderate. Mm-hmm. And if you are having trouble just talking, you are vigorous. Yes, I think that's a good way of, that's a perfect way of describing it. So 150 combined between those two is considered adequate. So we talked about last time, the CDC actually said that people who got less than that 150 were at increased risk of dying so much so that 8.3% of deaths in the United States were related to lack of physical activity to that 150 minute threshold per week. So... That is worth being said. Yeah. So, but it's not all or none, is it? So they went. Uh, so it, so the way the CDC did it was no activity, insufficient activity, which was less than 150, sufficiently active, which was 150 to 300, and highly active. 300's a lot, to be clear. That that's a that's a lot of work a week. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Do I? It's, I mean, it's five hours. Yeah. If you're doing just all moderate, if you're adding in vigorous, then. I probably get close no. to. I mean, it is possible. I probably get close to that a week, if you include my vigorous activities. So I'm probably right around there. But 
yeah, it's it's still like you have to work at it. It's not something that you're just like back into. You know, that that's something that you probably are, are trying to do. You know, and I, that sometimes, like I, I get that sometimes in the ER. You know, when people say, "How active are you?" And like, well, you know, I, I wash the dishes and I'm on my feet. And like, well, that doesn't count as physical activity. You know, you have to be getting your heart rate up. I'm going to argue with you there. I go on. I'll I'll hear it. <laughs> I th- it does count as physical activity if you take that person and you say, "All right." I'll compare your, you're on your feet all day and you're washing dishes versus the person that's just sitting on the couch. I didn't say all day. Right. The person who's on their feet. I put those words in your mouth and now I'm listening to them. (laughs) So, (laughs) so the person who's even doing those mild activities, even though they're not getting their heart rate up, even though it's just, um, kind of basic is think is still doing better and is going to have better outcomes than the person is just literally sitting because they're still having more metabolic output. It's not a lot more, but it's more. I would argue, I think you're right that the getting up and moving around is important from a cardiovascular benefit between sitting there and standing and doing dishes for 15 minutes, I think it's probably minimal. I think that you're active, you're, you're more engaged in things and you're using your core and you're standing and that's all great stuff and moving around. But I think if you're actually trying to get a cardiovascular benefit, your heart rate needs to get above resting. And I'm not sure it's getting significantly above resting while you're just sitting there doing dishes. Okay. If you're just talking about 15 minutes of doing dishes, sure. Yeah. But if you're talking about actual if you're six hours, increased movement yeah, overall. If, if you're cooking and then you're running around. Walking and, to work. Right. Or you're walking the dog or something. Yeah. I'll count that. But if you're like literally just standing there, like I took my dish over to the plate and I, or the plate over to the sink and I set it there. And then I went and sat back and sat down. I walked to the bathroom. You know, I, I checked. I checked that I had enough beer in the fridge before I made a beer run. I don't think these things count. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We agree there. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's kind of minimal. That's what you get when you put words in my mouth, Sagar. <laughs> an argument just so want it <laughs> yeah anyway so the next thing that i think we should talk about is uh hit training it's kind of a, i don't want to say it's controversial but it's it's hotly debated among the fitness activity or the fitness uh community rather about whether it's helpful or not so i i looked up a few studies and it's relatively inconclusive so high intensity interval training is basically exactly what it sounds like. You go really hard for a certain amount of time and then you take some time off uh, to let your heart rate come back down to, you know, a moderate level. And then you go really hard again for a minute or so or two minutes and then you take another, you know, 30 second to a minute break. And this is supposed to be like the, th- this was like the, the answer to all things exercise for a little bit. This was like, you know, there was CrossFit and then there was HIT and then there's like all these like, there's always a fad, right? And especially in exercise training, there's always a fad. Uh, so. HIT is specifically a form of anaerobic metabolism. Most of the time, you, you back down into the aerobic metabolism. So it's supposed to kind of be an, a, a fix of everything. So when you look at cardiovascular outcomes, HIT doesn't do a bad job, but it doesn't necessarily outperform what we talked about, 150 minutes a week of no matter what. For, so specifically from a cardiovascular standpoint, it wasn't all that great. It was fine. It's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but it wasn't like, oh man, you're going to be the best shape of your life and you're never going to die if you do HIT training. Now, another study looked at modern intensity training versus HIIT training for body fat outcome. It didn't, same thing, no difference. That being said, neither of them really helped with weight loss. <laughs> so I guess they're both failures, which again, kind of what we talked about, kind of looking back makes sense. That fits. Yeah. The argument that most people have made 
for HIT then is that it will decrease the amount of time you have to work out, which is probably fair because if you compare somebody who is, you know, I'm at, you know, 60% my max heart rate for 150 minutes a week versus HIT where you're getting, you know, half of those minutes are going to be vigorous to get to that 150, you know, that 150 minute mark between vigorous and moderate, you would have to work out for less amount of time. But basically all it's doing is throwing in some some anaerobic workouts. So that that's pretty much the max benefit you get is you can get the same amount of cardiovascular training done in less time, which I'm fine with. Which I think is huge. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not especially with people's busy lives. Yes. I, and I think that's the thing. But I think my point is if you can't do that, if you are somebody who has an injury or you have bad joints mm-hmm. and you can't do HIIT training, you're not necessarily losing out on the benefit. You just have to work a little bit longer. So you're not far behind as long as you're aware of your limitation, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. But you're right. From a, from a time-saving perspective in America where we feel like we're all busy and we have a thousand, or I guess any country, where we're all busy and we have a thousand things going on all the time, getting things done quickly is going to be beneficial for us, for sure. Right. And then that's another thing, just to put this out there, that when it comes to high-intensity training, that's not some necessarily objective measure mm-hmm. for high intensity. It's still high intensity for the person. Right. Right. So if you've had a heart attack, they still may do high intensity training with you in cardiac rehab and just push you to your mm-hmm. limit. Stop. Mm-hmm. Then do it again. Stop. Then do it again. If you can only walk down to your mailbox before you're huffing, puffing and, ah, oh, whoa, this was intense. Okay. That's where you start. Yeah. And then now you walk back home. And then next time you go from your mailbox, maybe down to the streetlight. Mm-hmm. All right. Now get back home. Yeah. It's, it's totally so true. So it can, and it, when it comes to people, things I found, when it comes to people getting workouts done, it can be kind of easier to get people to do high intensity training because the benchmarks are there and it's not a time benchmark, mm-hmm. right? It's, or it's a shorter time, right? Okay. You just have to go real hard for 30 seconds. Go. Okay, I can do. 30 I seconds. can do anything for thirty seconds. Take a few minutes break. Let's do thirty mm-hmm. seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm actually going to work out. Or okay, I just need you to make it down three streetlights, and then three streetlights more, and then you go. They see okay, one streetlight, two street, or even just one streetlight. But there's a physical benchmark. Boom. I can see I've made progress. Right. I agree. Yeah. So that mental mindset can be super helpful for people. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's me. That's why I'm so into it. I can't do a run. I just, I find it oh, pointless. I see it running. I run around in a circle. I'm back to where I started. <laughs> I mean, I do, then my knees hurt. I do it, but I do hate it. <laughs> to be clear, it's not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're, you're right though. I think that the, it's a little bit more psychologically, I think it's a little bit easier to do. I agree with you. Where you're not just like hitting some light that doesn't end. Like, you know, when I, I do boxing training here, basically in my home, I have a heavy bag and I love them because, you know, you, you have a, two minute, whatever, three minute round where you just hit the bag and then you have a minute break and you're like, okay, like there's, there's an easy light at the end until I can do, like I said, I can do anything for three minutes or sometimes like, you go for an hour run and you're like, man, it seems like really freaking long. And I know you marathoners out there like, oh, we're running, you know, whatever. I do that after three minutes. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's hard. I don't like running. So, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I find a lot of benefit for that. Yeah. And just as long as we're talking about this, I think there may we may have laid out a misconception that you can sit around all day, boom, do some training and bam, you're good for the day. Yes. So yeah, I think you're right. You can't just sit around, wake up, 
go for a 60 minute run, come back home, sit on the couch and, you know, rinse and repeat and consider yourself healthy. There, there is certainly benefit for, for being up and moving all day. I don't know if, again, I can't quantify that, but even like from uh, an exercise perspective, you know, the whole weekend warrior thing is, is, you know, pretty well known that if you go out and you try to do a bunch of stuff without ever trying to be active or train yourself otherwise, or, you know, you expect to just get up in the morning and run and not like ease into it, you're going to hurt yourself. And there's certainly a benefit to being mentally engaged in, in the mind and body. We talk about them separately all the time, but they're intertwined. And it, when you get complacent and just rest and sit around all day, you know, you're, you're not engaged in your environment. You're not engaged in what's going on. There's definitely benefit to seeing some, to moving uh, all day or, or finding some way to move around all day. If you work at a desk, get up and walk around, take a lap around the office. Uh, these things are, are good for you just for your joints, your muscles, your, your blood flow, your viscosity, all these things that, again, it's hard to quantify, but we know make a difference. Yeah, even little movements. I mean, I can think of a study that was looking at prolonged sitting and then comparing that to just breaking it up with short, short walks. For example, they had three groups in this particular study. One was just doing uninterrupted sitting. They're the control group. They're just going to keep sitting in a row. The second group would have two-minute bouts of light-intensity walking every 20 minutes. And then the third group would do the same thing, but instead of light-intensity, it would be moderate-intensity. And they were checking on blood glucose and insulin levels afterwards. And here's the interesting thing. Both the light and the moderate activity were uh, blood glucose and insulin levels got reduced compared to the people that were just sitting straight in a row. But they were reduced to about the same level. So whether you're walking lightly during your break or you're walking moderately during your break, you're going to get that same good benefit, mm -hmm. which just says, get up and move. Do it routinely. And you'll find that it actually helps. It helps help other people with not just blood glucose and insulin levels, but also things like stress, mental health. And just to go on talking about how there's not a threshold that you have to get beyond to start seeing improvement. Every little bit that a person can do to move is going to be healthful, right? And we think about, when we think about health and physical health, we often think about exercise and, okay, I've got to go to the gym and do this thing. I've got to go running. I've got to do the heavy bag, whatever it is. But you can actually move without doing those things. In fact, most people move without ever being in a gym, right? They got to move. We have to move. We have to do things in our life. And if you just stand for two hours a day, and that's all you're adding into your day, for two hours a day, and you're just standing, that's a 10% reduction in all-cause mortality, which is huge. I just want to bring up the idea of NEAT, which is a neat idea. It stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So essentially, it's a good pun, all right? <laughs> So I want to bring up the idea that movement doesn't have to be exercise. In fact, when I talk to patients about physical activity, this pillar that we call exercise, I just, I stopped calling it exercise. I started calling it movement because any movement is progress and may actually be enough. You don't necessarily have to do exercise, quote unquote, as we think of it, to get the benefits of exercise. You can get a lot of benefit from even just fidgeting or using a standing desk or just doing out some yard work. We're really looking for 
what's called 10 to 20 met hours per week. So I should define what a met hour mm -hmm. is. And what that essentially is, is your resting metabolism, how much oxygen you're burning as fuel for about an hour. So as a, an idea of what that means, sleep is almost one, it's 0.9. So that's what you're literally just laying there. Now, if you're just doing a casual walk for an hour, three miles per hour, that's three mets. You wanna climb two flights of stairs, that's five mets because climbing is more difficult than simply walking. And if you wanna run fast, maybe 11 miles an hour, probably slower than Zach, but still, that's pretty fast. Probably not. 18 mets right there over an hour. Okay, and that's huge because even simple things have big effects. For example, if you just stood up for two hours a day, you do nothing else, you just stand for two hours in a day, that can be a 10% reduction in all-cause mortality. So that lowers your chance of dying potentially up to 10% from anything, just standing there for two hours in a day, right? And when you look at the 150-minute recommendation, that is the recommendation, but you don't have to get to 150 minutes. Anything you do is going to start helping you live longer and better. 30 minutes in a week, 60 minutes, on and on and on. Obviously, if you go too far, you start running marathons every other day for a month, you're going to run into trouble. But as long as you're not doing that, you're going to consistently get improvement and benefit from it. Simple things like just walking around. If you do 200 minutes a week of brisk walking, that's another three years of life that you get added on. And I'm going to get on my soapbox briefly, as I've had to have this discussion multiple times over the holiday season. Life is about adding healthy, fun years, right? That's the whole point of these pillars is adding healthy, fun years, not just extending miserable years. And I've talked to a lot of people that seem to think that they can smoke, drink, eat junk, sit around on their couch because they're living it up and it doesn't matter if their life's 10 years, 20 years, 50 years shorter because they're going to have fun and then it's going to be over. Life is not an on-off switch. Instead, it's like a dimmer switch. And the more crud you do, the less healthfully you live, the dimmer your life gets. Two things. One, uh, the only change that I would make to what you just said is that when you're sleeping, you're just lying there. That's not totally true. There's a lot of metabolic stuff going on inside you when you sleep. That's probably the reason why you get 0.9 mets for sleeping. It's different than like lying awake and just lying there. 100% agree. So that's one thing. Two, uh, I totally agree with everything you just said, especially the last part where, yeah, people want to do what they want to do. And then, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've been told that in the ER where, you know, somebody comes in with chest pain and I tell them, you know, talk about their diet and their exercise and they go, you know, I don't want to do any of that stuff. You know, it, you know, smoking makes me happy. You know, eating, you know, bacon makes me happy. And when I die, I die. And they go, yes, yeah, that's true. You'll die faster, but you're skipping a lot of steps. You know, all of the heart disease that leads to heart failure or the stroke that you have that leads you debilitated or the amputation you're going to have because your diabetes is uncontrolled. These aren't things that will kill you right away. You might live for five or 10 years after that happens and it sucks because I've seen it. So, or, or the bad COPDers who come in and they can't breathe or the cirrhotics who have, you know, alcohol use disorder that they keep drinking and they come with, like, these aren't, they're not fun or quick ways to die. Sometimes they take some time and they're a miserable life toward the end. And I, I, you know, you're, you feel terrible for these people watching it happen. So yeah, it's not like you're just gonna walk around one day and then the happiest state of your health and then just drop dead while you're on vacation in Aruba. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna die in a nursing home somewhere. Yeah. 
The only dangerous activity that applies to is things like skydiving and hang gliding. Yeah. Things where you're falling from a very extreme height. Yeah. I mean, and there are certainly things that will increase your risk of dying just based on, you know, I drive race cars for a living. Like, okay, yeah, I mean, you will have an, try getting a life insurance policy with that vocation. You will have a hard time because your risk of dying is significantly higher. But yeah, for the, for the vast, vast majority of people, the, that's not applicable. I think that was an excellent point that movement outside of exercise also matters. So that, that's, a, that's a very, um, I shouldn't say even say outside of exercise, but without the formal structure of a workout program matters. It's still exercise. In the meantime, I'm Sauger. And I'm Zach. If you want to learn more, check out our website, cprhealthclinic.com, where we have more information. Because the way you live can save your life.